Welcome to episode 79 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are going to be starting a new series on characterization. Yeah, the last time we talked about characterization, we sort of did it from like an archetypal standpoint, like these are the types of characters that you often come across in fiction, but we didn't really delve into how to create characters Mm -hmm. that seem three-dimensional and compelling. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, obviously the disclaimer is that this, your mileage may vary, uh, from book to book. Um, but, and also I'm going to preemptively apologize if you hear any weird, like faint roaring noise in the background, that would be my heater. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am a thin blooded Californian, so I can't stand it when it gets colder than like 68 degrees in my house. (laughs) That's okay. I'm drinking a cup of tea. So any swallowing sounds are me. Um, So let's talk about characters, what makes a compelling character personally for both you and me. So let's start with you, Kelly. What makes a compelling character for you? What makes a compelling character? I feel like this is one of those questions that I need to like work my way into. And like, while I'm talking about it, I discover the answer, which is not necessarily what I thought it would be when I first started talking. Um, So... Compelling characters for me are ones that I connect with, um, but not always. Sometimes I find characters really compelling and I have nothing in common with them and I don't understand them and who they are, and yet they're just so compelling I have to keep reading about them. Um, And I'm trying to think of what it is about those sorts of characters or what those two different types of characters have in common um, that makes them both compelling to me. And I think ultimately... It's about the things the characters want and the vulnerabilities that the character has. Um, I think vulnerability for me is probably the key. Mm. That's what I find most compelling, no matter what kind of character type I'm talking about. Um, Some kind of vulnerability, some kind of sliver or crack that I can kind of use to wedge in to them and understand them better. So yeah, that it worked. See, I started talking and I didn't know what I was going to say. And then I found the answer. <laughs> I, I actually agree that vulnerability is kind of key. So Kelly and I, before we started recording, we're kind of trying to dis- figure out how we were going to structure the series because we wanted to talk about sort of three different things that really go into crafting characters, which are the characters' strengths and weaknesses um, their relationships to other characters in the story, as well as an overall narrative arc for the character. And, you know, we had sort of these three different topics, but we couldn't really decide on what we wanted to start with because they're all really kind of intertwined. 
that's kind of the, you know, obviously that's one of the difficult parts of, of writing is that you can't necessarily work on one thread at a time. I mean, you could, but it would take forever. You know, it's like braiding hair. You have three different strands and you have to work all three of them at once. Um, but we decided we were going to start a little bit smaller and start with what makes characters compelling and just they, you know, they seem to breathe or walk off the page or seem interesting to you. And, and I do agree with Kelly that vulnerability is kind of key, which I think is sort of separate from strengths and weaknesses, actually. Yes, I agree. What would you say is really the key difference? I think strengths and weaknesses can be, um, tangible or intangible, but they're like quantifiable, like, you know, like a strength, um, you know, for your character could be that they are, um, what to pull out of the air, like a strength for your characters that they speak multiple languages. And in this book, that is going to be a beneficial characteristic to have. And so that's a strength that they have. And maybe a weakness that they have is that they have, um, you know, oh, they're clumsy. That's like the quintessential, like teenage girl weakness is that I'm clumsy. And that stands in for a personality. Um, or that, you know, a weakness could be that they, um, lie all the time or that they, um, you know, that they, I don't know what weaknesses could be, but you can think of all kinds of different ones. But I think those things are not necessarily surface level, um, but that are, they're a little bit cosmetic, right? Yeah. And I think a vulnerability is much deeper and, and is emotion based and can be based in lots of different emotions. But I think it grows out of something like shame or fear or loneliness or despair or like some kind of like deep emotional root, um, at the character center. And I think in terms of, um, writing about vulnerabilities versus weaknesses, we don't write about them in the same way. Like you might, a character is aware of their own weaknesses, right? Like they know the Mm -hmm. things that they're good at and they know the things that they're not good at. And, they're not necessarily aware of their vulnerabilities or if they are aware of them, they aren't, they don't confront them. They're not comfortable with them. It's not something that you engage with. You kind of like hide your vulnerabilities away. Um, and so I think if we're getting into the talk of crafting it, when you're writing about vulnerabilities, your character is not going to come right out and say like, I have this deep sense of shame over this thing, you know, like you're not going to acknowledge it that way. You come at it slanted, you come at it like through layers and meaning and unravel it over time. Um, whereas I think weaknesses, you know, your character is cognizant of those and those can be much more straightforward when you're crafting. I think vulnerability does lend itself to a sense of three dimensionality because we don't go around you know, broadcasting our vulnerabilities to people, (laughs) right? So your character, I mean, if they were, you know, quote, realistic, right? They wouldn't go around saying that or broadcasting that. And I also think this goes to what makes a character three-dimensional for me is that there is a specific worldview the character has. Mm. They... You know, it goes back to the whole needs and wants discussion, right? What does your character want and what does your character need? Often what your character wants is what they're conscious of what they want. And then what your character needs is often something that they it's more subconscious. Mm-hmm. And 
So a vulnerability does drive the need of a character. I think, uh, you know, for example, I'm going to just pull it one out. Like, if your character has a deep-seated fear of being abandoned, that vulnerability is probably going to drive a lot of their decisions and the choices that they make in the narrative. You know, how they relate to other people and what actions they take to mitigate or assuage that vulnerability that they are probably not conscious of. Um, And a lot of this, at least for me, a lot of the writing process is discovering those vulnerabilities about my characters and then having to go back and then rewrite, (laughs) revising it. So, you know, it's not so obvious or feel so um, tacked on maybe, but like, so I think that sort of driving worldview and, and, so where that conflict between what they want and what they need or whether, you know, how they are two similar things that overlap but aren't the same thing, I think is pretty important. And what I mean by worldview is, you know, a lot of people just have, you know, I kind of hate to use this word, but a moral position on things. Mm -hmm. And not that I think a character needs to be morally good or whatever, I really actually, a lot of my favorite characters and some that I find extremely compelling are amoral characters or characters that I think I find amorality a little bit more interesting than like straight up immorality because I think immorality Mm. is like evil and you're kind of like, oh, well, you're just a bad person. So whatever. Um, I think, you know, it's not necessarily a moral center, but they have ideas about how the world should be that forms... Mm -hmm their worldview and that forms your worldview as a, as a person, even if the character you're writing has a worldview different from yours. So that I think is really the basis of a very compelling character to me. Now, how to write that? You know, it's like trying to describe the color blue to someone, right? Like, you know right. what blue is, you know, if if you're not colorblind, you know what the color blue is, but it, how mm-hmm. do you describe the color blue to somebody? Because um, I'm not, or at least I'm not the kind of person who sits down and intentionally builds characters in that way. I don't have a list, a checklist of these things that are like... What do they look like? What are their fears? What are their desires? Like, I don't really have that. I just have this very basic idea of what this character needs. I think that's actually where I start. I think, what does this character need? And and because once you figure out what that character needs, for me, it forms the basis of the plot. Hmm. Um, and for me, that's harder to do from the outside in, as I say, if I plot first and then having to figure out what the character needs once I have the plot framework, it's just harder for me to do. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, so you just, you identify a need and I think it's, it can't be, it can't be a physical, tangible thing. I think. Mm -mm. That's really, I think, also key. What a character needs, when if they need to be accepted, if they need to be loved, if they need to be feared, if they need to be admired, those are not tangible things. That's the driving force behind their drive to acquire physical, tangible things that 
you know, feed into that need. But right. when you identify that, you have to really think about more, more of a general idea or concept, I think. Um, and again, like, it's so hard to say, these are the steps that you do to blah, 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 blah. But I think that's, I think that's, most people, I think, at least when they write, they have an idea of a character. And then the process of writing, or at least, or maybe the process of plotting is figuring out how to make concrete the idea of the character that you have in their, have mm-hmm. in your head. So I think for compelling characters, I, I mean, the other thing is I start with a character. I don't necessarily start with an like a a plot or an idea, they kind of go hand in hand because the premise is tied in with the character that comes to me. For example, I'll use Winter Song. Liesl came to me, just kind of showed up, it's just this idea that she was a young woman who was a composer. Like, that was kind of it. And then um, as I was writing that story, really it was about her need to feel validated in her artistic vision or voice she needed that uh validation and that uh you know her acceptance of her own talents and that was something that kind of really went hand in hand like once i figured out okay she is a composer this is the setting what does she need based on what situation she's in and it's so hard to say okay it started here and then it started here and then it started here it's not a simple flow chart it's really more of like a, a big, messy conspiracy mm-hmm. board web, you know, where you've got like <laughs> pins here, here, and here, and you're like trying to connect it with red thread here and there. Like, that's kind of what the process of, of creating a character is like for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of me on a creation standpoint. But when you read a book with a compelling character, Kelly, what makes you identify the vulnerability like how do you identify the vulnerability when you read right I think this becomes that um that thing where the reader intuits things about the character that the character may or may not know themselves and you know, so when you're reading and you're you're trying to think, unfortunately, the example in my head right now is um, one of my clients' manuscripts has like a really beautiful um, example of this, and I keep wanting to use that as an example, but I cannot because it's just a manuscript right now and hasn't been published, and none of you will know what I'm talking about. Um, but um, it, very much in that project and in other projects that I read, I think the discovery of the vulnerability as a reader um, comes slowly over time and comes in those moments that are infused with another layer of meaning beyond just the character. So a lot of times it's like you can find it in characters' reactions to things, the way that they react or behave, um, you know, might be not a typical Reaction. Maybe they suddenly get very cold or very standoffish um, inexplicably, or maybe, you know, it, it, the way that characters react to, um, yes, to other people, but also to events, to objects, to places, to all kinds of different things um, that can really inform the way that um, these vulnerabilities kind of become apparent to readers. Um, and you kind of, 
you know, over a set of time, it's almost like a, like a puzzle and you, you pick up pieces along the way and you start to form them together. And the deeper you go into the book, you have a much better picture of, um, you know, the underlying story that's taking place. I think the example I'm going to think I'm going to actually bring up is Ron Weasley again. So we're going to talk about Harry Potter, you guys once more. Um, also because it's likely that the majority of you have read Harry Potter. So these references will make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ron is a lot of his actions are driven by insecurity and it's actually mm-hmm. the reason I dislike Ron as character. I'm not going to dispute that Ron is actually very compelling and very realistic. I know that guy, right? Like I know the guy whose every action is kind of dictated by his own feeling of inferiority. Um, but it, it, you know, it makes him turn on Harry in book four when Harry's name is drawn from the Goblet of Fire. And the it's kind of the first time Ron is just like, well, you know, did you do it on purpose because you want the attention? And also we saw it earlier, too, in the Mirror of Erised when yeah. he's standing and it shows him his deepest desire and he wants to be the best of his family. The You know, he wants to... Stand apart. Yeah. Stand apart. And these are all extremely believable and they're extremely realistic. Um, and I think all of Ron's actions are driven by this sort of deep-seated insecurity about himself. And <laughs> even the way he treats Hermione and, and other female characters in the series, which I cannot stand, but he, it is, it all stems from this insecurity and he has a maybe a slightly warped sense of what will give him that sense of of security and self-esteem so you know it does come across in their actions but it also has to make sense that's when we talk about when characters seem out of character i think it it we all as readers kind of have a sense of what these characters worldviews are and what drives them and when they act in ways that seem contradictory to that previously established worldview that we assume that they have, that's when a character seems out of character to us. Um, and this is also to say that this is not to say that the character's driving motivation can't evolve or change or shift. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that frustrated me most about Ron was by the time book seven had come along, I was like, aren't you over this? <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah, unfortunate. But I mean, I think that you're right that one of that the evolution of characters like that, um, is probably one of the most compelling things for me about fiction as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, characters that are, you know, brought through and their vulnerabilities come to light and they move beyond them and then they have different vulnerabilities and like different, you know, it just is that kind of evolution I think is phenomenal and, and so amazing. Um, and one of the, the things that I love most about fiction of all kinds. Well, it's like um, Suko from Avatar the Last Airbender. Yes. Who yeah. it, really, he is one of my favorite characters of all time. And he, we know immediately what his vulnerability is. He wants to, he wants to be accepted, you know, and loved by his father. And he, he comes to a point and it's, it's an evolution over the course of the series too, where, you know, that's his driving motivation for season one. And then season two, he's sort of trying to find his new 
drive and he doesn't know what it right. is yet and then makes the wrong decision at the end of season two. Oh. <laughs> if you've listened to our other podcast, you can listen to Carrie Kelly's reaction about it, which is hilarious. Um, wow. And then, but, you know, he, he finally comes to accept that he will never get this validation from his father and that's okay and that he's moved beyond that and that he mm-hmm. is, you know, that he's going to do what he believes is right even though he he wanted validation from his father, he can really only get validation from himself and what he to pursue what he believes is right. So that is an evolution of a character that feels real and mm-hmm. earned. And I think that's what why it makes Zuko one of the best in the entire series. Yeah. Um it's funny because <laughs> we're gonna talk a lot about Dragon Age. Uh <laughs> I um just finished playing Dragon Age two which I said that I wasn't going to play until my PS4 got here, and then I completely broke that uh, rule and just went ahead and binged through it. And the idea of Dragon Age 2, and in fact the execution of Dragon Age 2, is not uh, its not a bad game, you know, but it, for some reason it didn't have the same, what I call, sticky quality of the first game. Um, the second game is, is smaller in scope, but it's got a much more diverse group of characters and it's actually told as a story within a story. And, you know, each of the different plot points are separated by acts. So it's like act one, act two, and act three. It's a very interesting game. And as, as a storytelling mechanism, it's actually quite good, but I just didn't care in the same way, I, I was invested insofar as I'm invested in the series and I wanted to play it so I can get to my next playthrough of Inquisition. But, and I think that's, it actually does come down to the lack of vulnerability in in the characters you take on your companion quest. Because, so, for me, I was, I was like, who am I going to romance in this game? Because uh, that's, honestly, that's kind of really the whole point. I think Dragon Age is, like, really one huge complex dating sim <laughs> with with some battles and interspersed in, in, in between. But, um, so I really didn't feel strongly one way or another about any of them. I didn't care in the same way that I cared about Alistair because I really, really fell in love with Alistair and, and Origins. And... None of them have any vulnerabilities. They all have desires and that this is what they want. Uh, the character of Anders really dislikes the Templars and he wants freedom for mages. And, but I couldn't, but he has no vulnerability. You know, Kelly mentioned mm-hmm. this and I was like, now that I'm thinking about it, I was like, what does he need? What does Anders need? It's, I can't even say it's validation. I can't say that it's, anything like that. And I ended up accidentally romancing Anders, which was a terrible idea. You guys don't do what I did. Um, and and like literally accidentally romancing Anders. Like I literally Mm -hmm. offered him a sandwich and then he moved in with me and I was like, wait, when did this happen? How do I get out of this? Um, and then the other characters that are available to you as a romance, there's Meryl who is an elf and she has an interesting backstory, but I can't, put my finger on her at all. I couldn't get a handle on who she was. She seems this like very kind of slightly innocent and naive because she's kind of grown up outside of society and then she joins your party because there's a sort of a rift between her and the person who she's the keeper of her clan who's, you know, whose role she's supposed to fulfill one day. 
and you find out later it has to do with blood magic. But again, I don't know what Meryl needs. Like, you don't, I didn't understand what, what did she want? I, I couldn't even figure out what mm-hmm. she wanted. She just wanted to, like, restore this mirror to, like, figure out more about her clan's past or something. And I was like, but that doesn't mean anything to me. That's not a vulnerability. And Isabella, who I love as a character, um, and I think she would possibly be the most interesting is she's a pirate queen um, and she's funny and, and bisexual and flirts with everybody. And what does she need? I don't know. I, you know, she's Mm. a mercenary and she likes to fight and she, but I couldn't figure out what she needed. And, And the same thing with Fenris, who's kind of the last one who was a former slave and he hates mages. And so you kind of, that's it. That's kind of the simple... And, it, like, on paper, this all sounds fine, right? This all yeah. sounds fine. And yet, in practice, and in, in playing this game, I just never connected to any of them in mm. in the way that I did in Origins. So, and I, I don't know. You, Kelly, you've just been playing Origins for the past two years, but I don't know I what know. you feel about... <laughs> I don't know what you feel about any of the characters in that game. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you that they all have um, vulnerabilities that make them interesting, that are more complicated than just, uh, you know, I'm a, you know, mage who believes X, I'm a rogue who believes X. Um, they have something more compelling um, to them, and and more complicated backstories that make them feel uh, feel interesting. It's hard for me to even remember because we've been playing this game for so long that I'm like, okay, who is everybody and what is their deal? Um, but I know that I'm like you, that I like that game because of the way that um, people are, you know, and we've talked a lot about Life is Strange, but it's that same kind of a thing. Like Chloe, who is the... I love best Chloe. friend slash love interest uh, in that game. Should be love interest. So vulnerable, this girl. And she's a really great example, too, of like, I feel like sometimes when people get, um, when they hear the word vulnerability, they think of um, something very, like, exposed and... Um, tender and like you think like like vulnerable like soft and 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 you know unprotected and um and that's not necessarily what the word means in these kind of contexts I mean like yes but like Chloe is not a soft (laughs) character she is not She's super, super vulnerable, but she is angry and she is she's kind of off putting intentionally yeah. so and you can sense that it's intentional yeah that her she deliberately wants to make yeah. people uncomfortable and to provoke people she asks really blunt straightforward questions you know whereas like other people might be like kinder and you know skirt around things she's just very in your face and very blunt and harsh um and wild and angry and desperate and it all comes from like this horrible place of vulnerability where she is so she's been left alone just by everyone she's just lost people again and again and again and um 
it's so heartbreaking. Um, and that's kind of, you know, what I mean about vulnerability at no point in that time in the game does Chloe like, you know, have a breakdown and be like, I'm really lonely and I'm scared of losing people. <laughs> it's like, but you infer that from the things that she holds on to and clings to and the things that she pushes away. And, um, it's like, you when know, you she's just first see her again. <clears throat> and actually it's when you go to her room mm-hmm. and you, you just see these sort of things from her past and you start to infer based on sort of dialogue things that she says just how terrible her childhood and her past was and this like and that her her being off-putting and and so abrasive is really to drive people away so that she doesn't feel attached to them so that she doesn't have to lose them Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I chose the ending that I did. Because of I was... course, it's the only ending to choose. There is no other oh, ending. Spoiler alert, <clears throat> uh, we chose Chloe over the world. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I couldn't Anyone bear to do it. Anyone who did a monster. I know. I couldn't bear to do it. I couldn't bear to break her heart that way. I was like, I can't. I can't do it. Um, even though, like, the game is clearly trying to push you to make the hard choice. Yeah, um, the and, greater like, good. The greater whatever, good. Yeah. Because both Kelly and I googled the other ending that we didn't choose, and it's like much bigger and cinematic, much more cinematic, yeah. And we're just like, no, <laughs> this is not the choice I would have made. Um, yeah, but yeah, but that's kind of you know when you think about vulnerability, it is just deeply tied to these core emotional um, parts of ourselves that are, you know that we hide from ourselves, that we hide from other people, that it's almost too painful for us to look at directly. Um, and I think that, you know, so, so here's a question for you. Do you think that every character in a book should have a vulnerability or should be vulnerable? I think it depends on the lens through which you tell the story. So your protagonist absolutely has to have vulnerability. Otherwise, why do we want to spend all this time with this character? And I think the characters most important to the narrative should have vulnerable vulnerabilities that the reader can infer. So there's like your protagonist at the center of your narrative and there's like maybe the immediate circle around them. I think these characters should have vulnerabilities that you can get to. But then there's sort of, there's like another ring around that where it's other ancillary characters that are supporting the main cast, but you don't need, I mean, you don't have time to go into everybody's vulnerabilities, I think, in a book. So I think it does depend on the lens through which you view or through which the story is told. Um, Because we don't know everybody's vulnerabilities. I think we are we know what they are in our closest, most intimate circle of friends and family and those we know best, we know what those vulnerabilities are. But, you know, beyond that, your acquaintances, your colleagues, the people that you don't know intimately. And I think that's, isn't that what friendship is? You're, you allow yourself to be vulnerable with people you trust. And that trust is what allows you to see that. And I think too, being vulnerable it inspires empathy in the reader. And 
it doesn't mean that you have to like the character, but it, it inspires empathy and it makes you feel like you understand the character. And that's, I think, when they start to become human to you. They start to become three-dimensional to you. Um, because I think... Like, and I think about TV shows with, like, a large ensemble cast. I don't need to know everyone's, like, deepest, darkest fears or whatever. Especially if they're not in... They're not driving the main plot forward. Then you don't need to... I mean, in a long-running TV show, that's one thing. Where you can have, like, your one-off episode, right? Where you, Mm -hmm. like, deeply delve into this character's backstory. Um, Because I was actually thinking of Buffy. Which is not a show I particularly love all that much. Um, And I think Kelly could probably talk about Buffy better than me. But I think you basically you have Buffy and Angel and Willow and Xander. And you kind of have like this core cast of characters. And then you have like Dawn and and other characters. Mm. I I mean, like, again, I don't know this show as well. (laughs) You can tell, I think, in the tone of my voice. I'm just like, yeah, but you're not into it. I love Buffy. I love Angel too. You like Angel a little bit better. I, I like Angel Buffy, better, yeah. but I think that um, you know, I was just kind of thinking like Lost. Um, like, is this the difference between why John Locke is so compelling and Jack sucks so much? Yes, because I feel like Locke has a lot of vulnerabilities, and Jack has a sad backstory, which is that his dad was mean to him and an alcoholic. <laughs> but that's not the same thing as a vulnerability. <laughs> No, and it's also because it doesn't really drive any of his decisions. Not really. It drives a lot of external plot things and a lot of the things that he does that suck. Whereas everything that John Locke does is driven by his need to believe that everything happens for a reason and he was put here for a reason and that his, his life and his choices have a greater meaning and purpose because if he, if that belief turns out to be false, then his entire life is too unbearable for him to live. And like, that's a huge Mm. vulnerability to need to feel that way. Um, and I think he was a much more compelling character than Jack. Everyone was like, yeah, maybe except Kate and Kate's Kate's a character that has no vulnerabilities. She didn't have any vulnerabilities either. No, she has an interesting backstory and absolutely no vulnerabilities. And therefore a lot of the things that Kate did, one started to make no sense. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole, you can't come Kate problem. (laughs) Like, why does she do these things? We don't understand why we don't understand anything about what's her driving need. What is her driving need? We don't have any idea. So yeah, vulnerability. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think that's actually probably a really good place to start from. You understand a character's vulnerability and their need to whatever that drives, because that will affect absolutely everything that they do and the choices that they make and the relationships that they have with other people. That absolutely does. I think, you know, we're not necessarily cognizant of our own vulnerabilities either um, or our own deepest fears, but... I think it does. I think that does absolutely drive how we relate to people, who we relate to, and why. You know, why do you become friends with certain people? You know, there, it all has to do with your your vulnerabilities and what these people can bring into your lives and what you can bring into their lives and that sort of. You know that when you're writing, you have to mirror that real life process in your writing when it comes to characterization. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of 
what we have to say and this sort of like introduction to what it is specifically that makes a character really compelling. Obviously, there are cosmetic things that make characters appealing to us. We all have our own, you know, our own types, you know, but I think that only goes so far. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of characters that on the surface, I think I would like. Anders being one of them from Dragon Age, I have a total weakness for cinnamon rolls. Like I do, like those were just too pure, too good for this world. And I thought, oh, Anders, because he, he's possessed by the spirit of justice. And he had a cat once and I was like, oh, that's really cute. And then I was like, no, you're really boring. <laughs> um, so, you know, you can, you can give a character all the surface traits that you may like, but doesn't necessarily mean that people will develop a connection with that character. So mm-hmm. any last thoughts? No, I think we covered it. Awesome. Uh, so what are we working on? Um, I am working on just wrapping things up before the end of the year. I have told myself that I'm going to start January with a clean slate. And that means I have a lot of work to do <laughs> to get caught up. Um, so yeah, I'm just doing some admin work, some, you know, digging through my queries, finishing up requested reading, uh, hounding editors to get back to me on submissions, that kind of a thing. I am working on the next book in my series and having a real issue because my main character is a foodie. Yay! <laughs> but I am not. And, you know, the the whole thing about write what you know, <laughs> this is not something I know. I was like, why did this have to happen to me? Um, and this is the thing about creating characters, right? Like, I didn't set out to make this character a foodie. I think she just is. That's sort of just how she came to me as a character. But in order to make it believable, I have to understand the way she relates to the world. Like, how do you relate to the world as somebody who enjoys food? I enjoy food, but I'll be completely honest that I food is just food. You know, when it comes to a good meal, the experience of a good meal is just, for me, is like, Will I be, you know, full at the end of it? That's kind of it. Like, that's basically what it comes down to. I am somebody who eats to live. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) You know, so, but I I don't think, I think if my character was a foodie, I think she would, you know, relate to the world in a different way. She would probably pay attention to small sensory details. And that's not just food. It's other things around her. Um, so it changes a lot of the way I perceive this character and how to write them. So that's really difficult. Um, also, this book is written in the third person, unlike Winter Song, which was the first person. And it, in some way, it is, it is easier to get into a character when you're writing first. Um, yeah. I used to write all of my books in third person, um, and Winter Song really was the exception. And... It's easy to find Liesl's voice because I know just how insecure she is. And I know just how (laughs) tortured she is about a lot of things. Even if she doesn't necessarily express them to other people, she is honest and candid about those things to herself. Um, But since I'm writing this one in third person, I have to sort of, you know, show it and allude to it without like, sitting down with here's an info dump about what this character feels and why. So it's trying to find that footing again. 
I'm also having difficulty with the love interest. I know exactly who this love interest is, but then, like, trying to figure out how they, like, work together <laughs> is also really difficult. So writing is hard. Why? Why? Why is writing so difficult? <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's that's what I'm doing, so... Um, what about, what are you reading? What am I reading? Did I read anything this week? I don't think that I did. No, I talked about this mortal coil last time and that's the last book I read. I've got like a million things on hold, but nothing has come through. No, no new books this week. What about you? I just got a copy of Last Scene Leaving by Caleb Rorick who is a pop club oh, contributor. I love Caleb. I, I adore Caleb. And uh, I didn't realize that this was a thriller. And I am actually in the mood for that. So I'm pretty excited. I've heard good things about this book. Um, I also have, this is Lily Anderson's second book. The title is <gasps> right here not next now. to me. Um, not, now, not now, not, not ever. ever. Yeah. So I, that That's on is... my library hold list. I'm next. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> So that is on my TBR, but I haven't started it yet. And also I, like, I think I mentioned previously that I bought a bunch of books in China for research for this series. And so the one I'm reading, I just finished a book about China's geography. Um, and so now I'm actually reading about food and festivals. Yes. And again, I'm trying to like get into this whole food thing, which I just don't really care about. Like... <laughs> I'm like the least sensual person. Like I, I just, I just don't care. <laughs> it doesn't move oh. me in any sort of visceral way. Um, so that's what I'm reading. Uh, off many recommendations. Uh, I have a podcast recommendation. Um, it is uh, 36 Questions, the musical which actually came out over the summer and I remember hearing things about it, but I was like, Oh, I will look into that later. And I actually like subscribed to the podcast and it's just been sitting in my queue forever. And so a couple days ago I had run out of things to listen to and I needed something on. And so I was like, Oh, I'll give this a try. It's a um, podcast musical starring um, Jonathan Groff, uh, who played um, the king in Hamilton. He was also in Spring Awakening. He was on Glee. He's Kristoff uh, in Frozen. He's done <laughs> many, many wonderful things. Um, his resume is long and, and fabulous. And then uh, Jesse Shelton is the other actor. And I didn't know much about her. Um, this is my first exposure to her. And it was... Um, it's a two-person musical in three acts. So there's three episodes, hmm. and each episode, each act is about an hour long, 45 to 60 minutes. And it is about a married couple whose marriage is dissolving uh, because the wife has been lying about who she is since the day she met her husband, and he has recently discovered it. And so he is trying to leave the marriage and she is trying to salvage the marriage. And her idea for salvaging it is to go through the 36 questions. I can't remember the name of the study, but this is like a real study that exists. Like the Proust that, questionnaire? 
that might be it. Yeah. It's like, it's 36 specific questions, um, that you can ask a total stranger and it's supposed to forge intimacy between two people who've never met before. And so in this musical, they did those 36 questions on their real first date. And now she's trying to have them do them again so that she can tell her husband who she really is. Cause she's been lying all this time. It has a lot in common with kind of like the last five years and that it, that's what I was thinking this, of. Yeah. you know, this dissolution of a marriage and these people, it's really funny in parts. Um, especially Jonathan Groff gets to flex comedic chops quite a bit in it. Um, and it's really interesting and unexpected. Talk about um, being on theme. It's tons about vulnerability. Um, the music is really interesting. It's very atonal and like um, it w- strange keys and like a lot of minor keys and a lot of like movement between keys within songs and um, a very interesting sound um, from the music. Uh, and it is a very successful three-act musical. I still can't decide how I feel about the story, so I need you to listen to it so we can talk about it. Okay. Um, but it's really good and and was a happy surprise. So that's my, that's my off-menu recommendation for the week. Yeah, didn't you say it was by the producers of Limetown? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that, what is it, Two Up Productions? Um, I, I think so. I just, I can't yeah. remember. Um, I know the people who are involved are the same people involved in Limetown. Yeah. I, lo- I mean, obviously, since I love Limetown so much, that this is a pretty ringing endorsement, I think, of... Mm-hmm. And also, the second season is finally, finally in production for that podcast. Like, I think like two years ago, we I think we mentioned I mentioned Limetown as what I was listening to and binging, um, and that's such a it's such a it's honestly it's still one of the best dramatic podcasts I've ever listened to because I do listen the only other one that I listen to that's sort of dramatic and this is from I think the actual company is like Pacific Northwest Stories or I can't remember the actual title Minnow Beats Whale or something. And they're the ones that did the the Black Tapes podcast and Tannis, mm. and they have two other spinoffs, I think, like Rabbits and something else. And I listen to them all just kind of in the background mostly because, like, I can't honestly follow any of it anymore. And they all sort of started to get similar in terms of story, like what they were, the, what material they were covering. And what I thought was so great about the production, like literally Limetown is one of the best produced podcasts I've ever listened to. Um, the sound effects, the voice acting with the exception of one character, her name is Winona. I was just like, you needed to recast this woman cause she's terrible. <laughs> but, um, I think the, the sound effects and how it comes together, it sounds real. And I hate to say that, but like, and I compare this to the Black Tapes podcast, which I took me a while to get into simply because the production quality wasn't as good. And I don't mean the sound quality. I literally mean like, you know, they would use music beds and, and sound effects in a way that I was like, it it took me out of the verisimilitude of the story that I was listening to. So I think, I think Limetown is just one of the best produced podcasts I've ever listened to at all. So I'm kind of interested to see what they're doing that's not the continuation of this story that apparently they just did because they 
wanted to get into TV but wasn't having any success. Yeah, and this is kind of the same. They were like, we want to do a, a musical. And they had the very basic premise, which is that it was going to be about a marriage breaking up. And they hired um, these two composers uh, and lyricists who were in a band together to write the music. And they could kind of come up with the plot themselves and the book and all that. So they got a lot of freedom. And I guess the the composers... Um, just like emailed Jonathan Groff one day <laughs> with the subject, with the subject podcast musical. And they were like, we're never going to get him, but you know, but why we'll not? Try. Yeah. And, and he was like, yeah. So I saw this email that said podcast musical. And I was like, oh, okay, that's weird. He's like, and then I read it. And I guess he actually was familiar with, um, one of the women, it's a woman and a man who wrote the show and he was familiar with the woman's work and he was like obsessed with her on YouTube and had watched like one of her videos like 800 times. So he's like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so That's amazing. He's like, it's a great story and his interviews about it are all really interesting. Um, it just really just seemed like a passion project that everybody kind of came together and did. And I guess they did it over two weeks and um, just, yeah, it's really great. So recommend. What about you? Mm. Other than Dragon Age, Dragon Age. I live. I live. This time, time I live tweeted my playthrough of Dragon Age Two, which is it is a very weird experience of having played the third one and then gone back to play the first two, because there are characters that show up again um, in the in Inquisition that were in both Origins or Dragon Age 2, or both. And particularly the character that I romanced in Inquisition actually shows up in both Origins and Dragon Age 2. So that is kind of weird to see the evolution of this character, which is like, I met Colin, you know, literally 10 years after the events of Origins. So when I went back to play Origins, it's like a really young, innocent, uh, idealistic version of this character and then the second one is actually you see the events that turn him much more cynical. Um, so, and again, I'm much more invested in Cullen than I was in the characters that I was playing with. And Cullen is a non-playable character. He's just there um, mm. as somebody who you talk to and who um, kind of directs the narrative a little bit. But, like, I was much more invested in Cullen than I was in in Hawk or, or even there are two characters that, that comprise the frame narrative of um, Dragon Age 2, and that's Varric and Cassandra. And I love the two of them. And they also show up in uh, Inquisition. Varric was a playable character in Dragon Age 2, and I loved him in Dragon Age. He was the only one in Dragon Age 2 that I liked. And um, he shows up again as a playable character in, Dra- in Inquisition. Cassandra shows up as a playable character in Inquisition now. Um, but Dragon Age 2... She's trying to get a story out of Varric. He's a writer. He um, He's a dwarf, and he apparently writes what is alluded to as being essentially pulp novels. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he wrote the story of the champion of Kirkwall, who is the character you are playing. And he's kind of an unreliable narrator. So the act breaks are just kind of cutscenes of him talking to Cassandra and she's like, that's, that's not what happened. And he's like, ah, how do you know? <laughs> like, um, 
so again, like all these side characters, I really, really enjoyed, and I really, but I, I could really care less about. And like the beginning of Dragon Age Two had so much promise because you play as Hawk, you can play as a uh, male or female Hawk, but you have to be this particular character. Um, and I chose to play as a male Hawk this time, and you're like escaping the event because it it sort of takes place concurrently a little bit with the events of dragon age origins and you're escaping the events of the first game and like the first 10 minutes of the game are like really intense setup you know like you lose one of your siblings you always have to lose a sibling um it actually depends on what class you chose but you lose a sibling and you meet some of the playable characters and it's like this really emotionally intense beginning that never went anywhere for me. And I was so primed mm. to really fall in love with these characters the way I had before, but I was just like, I just didn't care. And you can see that like in my live tweets, I'm just like, why are you, you know, like, Oh, you're the worst. Or, you know, like I just yeah. it wasn't quite the same thing. So that was what I did this past week. I think I played the whole game in like three days, maybe. Is there like a dragon shaped, a dragon age shaped hole in your heart now? <laughs> yeah, because I'm replaying Inquisition at the finished. moment. <laughs> uh, I am actually replaying Inquisition because I there there are things that I wanted to do. I so my PS4 arrived today. I'm so jealous. Um, so I am going to. I I bought everything essentially Dragon Age related. Now I bought all the downloadable content as well and. Basically, because when I played Dragon Age Origins, I didn't recruit a companion. I just missed her, and I'm just kind of mad about this. Um, and and the first time I played Inquisition, because I wasn't really familiar with anything at all in this world, I kind of felt like the gameplay and the story came weirdly. Like it all. Like by the time mm. I figured out how everything worked, I had to like it was like backloaded to the second half of the game. So this time I'm playing Inquisition properly. It sounds weird, but like actually like finding all the companions when I'm supposed to, as opposed to like having to go back like, oh, I guess I missed somebody here. Whoops. Right. Um, and at least in, in Inquisition, you have the opposite. Uh, you have the option to recruit everybody you've missed because I managed to get everybody my first time playing it, but you can't do that in Origins. If you miss out on Leliana at Lothering, you, she never shows up. She's just not in the game. And I was like, I'm so mad because Leliana is actually a main character in Inquisition. So I was like, God. Um, also the choices and, and because I hadn't played the first two games before I played Inquisition, none of the choices that I made in the first two games carried over. Mm -hmm. And the choices that, I wanted to see now what the choices, how that would affect. And, and it does affect things. Uh, the character that I love most in Origins, Alistair shows up again in Origins, depending on what you chose for him. Um, and I picked Grey Warden. So he plays actually a pretty major role in, in Inquisition. And I was just like, oh, you're there. I still love you. You're my favorite. <laughs> um, yeah, so PS4 has arrived. So that's honestly what I'm probably going to do. I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish this playthrough of Inquisition and probably actually start the Mass Effect trilogy. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Mark and I actually think you're playing Mass Effect because he's always wanted to play and he never got around to it. So 
Um, we are probably not going to play the way you and David do. I think we're just going to play. <laughs> Don't <laughs> just play because you'll be miserable. And two years later, you won't have finished the game yet. Just finish Origins. Just do it. Just finish Origins. I beg you. I need somebody else to be in this cult with me. <laughs> We did get a question on Twitter. Let me see if I can find it. It was from Mike Chen. Mm. Come on. Here it is. Okay, so this is from Mike Chen, and his question is, for traditional pub debuts, what's the best marketing slash publicity thing the authors can do on their own? And when's a good time to dig into it? And he says, I'm about a year out and totally overwhelmed by conflicting info slash advice. Mm. Honestly, the best thing you can do is just do whatever makes you happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think if you're a year out, it's way too soon to be worrying about it much anyway. Um, Most of the promotion that you do is going to come much closer to publication. Um, so right now is really not even, you know, for all the things that you can worry about and all the things that are on your plate, like I can very confidently tell you to put this aside for now. (laughs) It's not, um, not something you should prioritize right now. Um, you know, and, and when the time comes, I think JJ's right. I think the best promotion is the promotion you're happy and comfortable doing. And, um, if it's not making you happy or you're not comfortable doing it, then don't do it. Uh, you know, we have a couple of podcasts where we've talked about this stuff before. Be a person on social media. Don't be a walking promotion machine. Um, but there are things that you can do. I think, um, Susan Dennard has written a post about what she did to promote truth, Witch. um, she did a lot of, author promotion for that. And that's a probably a great post to read if you're looking for similar ideas for what authors can do. But I think for now, I would just say, wait, figure out what your publisher's publicity plan is going to be when the time comes, um, you know, see what you can do to supplement that talk with your agent. Um, I think Mike Chen's agent is Eric Smith, actually, who's a promotional whiz. So you'll have no trouble. Eric will have lots of great ideas for you. Uh, your agent will, whether it's Eric or not, will have a great, uh, plan and will help you through that. You know, don't worry about it later. Don't worry about it now. (laughs) Yeah. A year out is, I think there's a a difference between the sort of front facing publicity that you see and this stuff you can do to build your community. And I don't mean a community of readers because you can't really have a community of readers until your book is out. So yeah. That's hard to do. So, but I, when I mean community, I mean other writers. Mm-hmm. The best way to get people to know about your book is to get other people talking about your book. And the easiest way to do that is to get your friends to talk about it. And I don't mean like get them to shill your book. Um, but I mean, I got a lot of people talking about Winter Song fairly early because I'd had friends who read it early, you know, and they just talked about it. You know, they liked it enough to talk about it. Um, if you want something more concrete, I would say have a newsletter. I started my newsletter fairly early. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I only started it because I was subscribed to a lot of other author newsletters and I liked them. I, I enjoyed reading them. So I was like, Hey, I could do one. Um, and you know, a newsletter subscription takes a lot of time to build. And for me, the thing that I was able to do to sort of drive people to subscribe to my newsletter was actually have my cover reveal via the newsletter, which was not intentional. Um, the cover reveal, we were sort of debating what outlets to, um, put it up at, and it just was kind of back and forth about it. And ultimately we decided, you know what, getting it in the newsletter, because once it's out, you can't control yeah. the actual reveal of it. So it was a little bit trying to get ahead of that actually. Um, but it worked out in my favor. I was able to get a lot of people who were, who had already heard of my book, to subscribe to my newsletter because I wanted to see what the cover looked like. And in, almost instantaneously after I, I showed the cover, it went up on Goodreads because that's kind of the timing yeah. issue. Um, so, and I had my cover early. That was the other thing. Um, so, but I think going to not, I don't want to say pay and go to events, but you know, if you go to a reader festival, meet other aspiring authors, enjoy being a fan of other authors and, start to get to know them as your colleagues, you know, they're your, like, they should be your colleagues and your friends. Like, you know, no one's going to promote your book because you ask them to, they're going to do it because they want to. That's the organic buzz part. Right. Um, so I think the only other thing I would say you can invest in aside from a newsletter is bookmarks or business cards, you know, just, you know, you meet people and you'd be like, Hey, you know, this is my contact info. Let's keep in touch. That's essentially what business cards are for or bookmarks are for. And, you know, if you have your cover already, you can put it on your bookmark. Um, but, you know, it really just like, I think just get to know people. That's the best promotion you can really do is you make contacts and in this business. It's still, I think every business is actually a business of networking you know, nobody wants to hear that, but I think it's true. Um, make friends, but you're a year out. I wouldn't worry about it too much. The biggest promotion, the front facing promotion happens about three to six months before your book comes out. You know, basically you don't really have much to do until your arcs are available. And then once your arcs are available, you can start actually ramping up publicity. But right now, enjoy this time. <laughs> You know, and if you want to talk about newsletters, I can talk about newsletters a little bit. Uh, my first, I shared a lot of the behind the scenes stuff about Winter Song, not in the process, not necessarily the production aspects of it, but just like the backstory of where the idea came from, what influenced me, what I was working on. Um, and I think people do respond to that. At least I had a good response. People seem to like getting this glimpse into the creative process of it. I think people do like that. Like, you know, the interviews with Jonathan Groff about how he got involved in 36 questions. That's interesting to yeah. people. And I think people are interested in where did this story idea come from and how did you work? How did you go about executing this idea? I think that's an interesting thing to share. And I personally, for me, the newsletter was the easiest and most, uh, low maintenance way of doing it. So, <laughs> That was, that was it. Uh, do we have any other questions? 
I don't think so. I think we had one, this, this was a comment on, um, one of our podcasts and it wasn't a question so much as, um, this person wanted to know if we were going to do a legend of Korra podcast. No, (laughs) in theory, the answer is yes, we are. We just don't know when. Um, we have plans for it. Uh, all three of us are on board. JJ and I do this podcast with our friend, Mike. Um, so all three of us very much want to do it. And it is a matter of coordinating schedules and timing and all that good stuff. So, uh, it will be happening, but I don't know when. Yeah. Uh, it, it yeah. To be determined TK date TK. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't even know what that's short for. I don't know. You know, like you see those things in like, you know, arc sometimes says like dedication TK. It, it means to come, but I don't actually think. But why is it TK, TK instead of TC? I don't know. Is it because I don't know either. Now we have to find out. Now we're going to Google. Hold on. Hang on a minute. Elevator music here. <laughs> do, 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 do. I'm not doing the key change. It just says it it does stand for to come and it's abbreviated to TK. But it doesn't DTC must mean something else. DTC must have been taken. Yeah, it doesn't say, it says TK is, as an abbreviation, may originally have come into use because very few words featured this letter combination. The phrase to come, by contrast, could potentially be mistaken as a deliberate part of the text. So that would be the reason, I guess. It's like where the apocryphal story of where does the word okay come from? I don't actually Hmm. know. Now I have to look that up, too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this is the this is the problem with being a Ravenclaw. You're like, oh, what does that mean? Uh... Yeah, there's no there's no standard history of where OK comes from. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Uh, we don't have a new review. I did check this week, so mm-hmm. alas. Um, but if you would, you know, who would mind dropping a review and a rebate, um, the ratings are great too, but we actually really love reading reviews <laughs> of the podcast. Um, so, you know, if we could do that, that would be great. Um, yeah. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be continuing this series by talking about strengths and weaknesses in characters. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. 
And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr or ask us on Twitter using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.